Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just are so grateful to you for this great day that you've given us. A day in which to sing your praises, a day in which to focus our thoughts upon you and our life in you. Life that you've given us because we have trusted your son Jesus. What a magnificent Savior. We can't even fathom what he went through for us that we might have the hope of eternal life by simply putting our trust in him. Not through works, not through law, not through religion, but by believing in your son and his finished work on Calvary. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to interpret it properly. Help us to follow it carefully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you that the topic of Acts 15 is that doctrine is worth defending. That's what we established last week. Doctrine is worth defending. Paul the Apostle, who said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 and following, I have become all things to all men, so that by all means, possible means, I might save some. He also said in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven shall preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. You see, doctrine is important. Paul, the one who would be all things to all men by, so that by all means he might save some, he cared that much about the salvation of people around him, also said if anybody preaches the gospel that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel that the apostles taught, let them be accursed. He said later in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Doctrine is worth defending. That's the topic here in Acts chapter 15. Doctrine's important. Uh, in the preface to Mere Christianity, I used to share this at each of the welcome lunches. I may start it again today. Who knows? But I'm going to share it with you this morning. In the preface to Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis uses an interesting analogy, an interesting illustration of the church and, uh, and the various denominations. And basically, he is, he is saying, I picture Christianity, and, I, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's saying, I picture Christianity as a great house with a great hall and many doors in that hall. And he said basically that each door represented a denomination. And you could go through this door or this door, but how would you decide which door? And this is what he said, Above all, you must be asking which door is the true one. 
not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. In plain language, the question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness there? He is saying that the most important thing of all is doctrine. And is the doctrine of the church true? That's what's important. That's the crucial issue. So doctrine is important and doctrine is worth defending. And that's what we're seeing in Acts chapter 15. The need to defend the the gospel against the legalists. The need to defend the gospel against the Judaizers. The need to defend the gospel against those who would add to faith law or those who would add to faith circumcision. There was a need to defend the gospel. Why did that happen? Well, remember, there's a growing presence of primarily Gentile churches. That's what we tried to establish last week. There's a growing presence at this time in the history of the church in primarily Gentile churches. And so those who are, uh, came to Christ out of Judaism, uh, they have a difficulty in how uh, would they react to this new direction. They were zealous for the law, zealous for the sign of the law, circumcision. So how should they react to this growing presence of primarily Gentile churches? J. Vernon McGee expressed the issue this way. What did Christ do for you on the cross Is the work of Christ adequate to save you? Do you need to go through some ritual or something else in order to be saved? Must you go through the law? These are the questions they were asking. And then he goes on to say, they wanted to add something to the gospel. Friend, whenever you add something to the gospel, you no longer have the gospel, but you have a religion. You no longer have the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is only one question God asked the lost world, what do you do with my son who died for you? That's the only question God asks. God doesn't give us, he McGee goes on to say, God doesn't give us some little Sunday school lesson by saying, I want you to be a good boy. I want you to join a church. I want you to go through this and that ritual. That kind of teaching is only for an insipid religion. It does not come from God. God is saying, my son died for you. What will you do with him? The answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny. This is the issue being discussed at the council in Jerusalem. And he concludes, this is really exciting. (laughs) I would agree with him. This is exciting stuff. The church is at a crossroads. By the way, let let me ask, what have you done with Jesus Christ? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Him? Have you trusted Him? Not church, not religion, not ritual, not the law. But have you trusted Jesus Christ and Him alone? Dr. Charles Ryrie frames the issue this way. 
any addition to salvation by grace in any day, whether it be the addition of circumcision or the keeping of the law or anything else, is a problem similar to and equally as serious as the one which faced the Jerusalem council. And that brings me to last week where we stopped in our study of Acts 15. We were talking about what Paul ends, uh, the editor of the Moody Handbook of Theology, called erroneous, erroneous false views of the conditions for salvation. And we looked at two last week. I just want to take a few moments here because I don't want to spend all our time on this, but I want to take a few moments to talk about two other erroneous ways the gospel is expressed that adds conditions to faith in Jesus Christ. The the two ways are this. The first, and and they're both based on a wrong understanding of Romans 10.9. And we'll look at that passage in just a moment, so if you want to turn there, you can. Romans 10.9. The first erroneous view is this. You must believe and confess Christ publicly. You must believe and confess Christ publicly. Enns says this, the condition of publicly confessing confessing Christ for salvation is sometimes added to faith on the basis of Romans 10, 9. This passage, however, is not establishing an additional condition for salvation. Rather, to confess Jesus as Lord means to acknowledge His deity. This was and always will be a critical issue in terms of salvation. The one who believes in Christ as Savior must of necessity acknowledge his deity. That is the meaning of Romans 10, 9. So the whole issue of faith is to acknowledge the deity of Jesus Christ. To acknowledge that he is the God-man. Not just a man, but he is God incarnate. He is the God-man. Uh, if you've not yet turned to Romans 10, 9, uh, let's turn there now. You're familiar, I'm sure, with this passage that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And there are those who say that unless you believe and publicly confess your faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. Well, all this verse is saying is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, To be saved, you must confess to God that you believe His Son is deity. You believe His Son is God incarnate and you're putting your trust, everything, your trust for today, your trust for tomorrow, your trust for eternity in His Son who is God incarnate. It's not talking about confessing necessarily confessing publicly to men. It's talking about confessing to God. By the way, the word confess in Scripture simply means to agree with. We're familiar with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a verse to believers. That has nothing to do with salvation. But what it means when it says to confess, it means to agree with. I agree with what God has 
said about this particular action in my life. I agree that God says it is sin. I agree that it is wrong. So to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess that you have come to the conclusion that He is not just a human teacher, He is not just a man, but He is the God-man. And that's the issue in Romans 10, 9. Now, the next erroneous view is also based on Romans 10, 9, and it is that you must believe and surrender. That is, you must believe in Christ and make Him Lord of your life all at the moment of salvation. You must believe in Jesus as your Savior and make Him the Lord of your life at the moment of salvation. Now, please hear me carefully. Every one of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ should be in the process of making Him Lord of our lives. Uh, so don't, you, I want us all to be on the same page there. Don't go out of here saying that I don't believe that Jesus Christ should be Lord of our lives. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He should be increasingly Lord over every part of your life and every part of my life. You see, lordship is not something that happens at the moment you come to faith in Christ. Lordship is something that happens all throughout your Christian life, all throughout my Christian life. You may be a Christian for 20, 25, 30, 40 years and discover an area of your life that's not under the lordship of Christ. So please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we ought not as believers in Jesus Christ, to be bringing every part of our lives under His Lordship, what I'm saying is that you cannot make trusting Christ as Savior and as Lord, meaning Lordship, a condition for salvation. Uh, in the uh, Awana training, I, I think that we, uh, they don't have this as part of the training anymore, but it used to be part of the training, they have a tremendous section. Awanda did a tremendous job of putting together evaluation of all kinds of invitations that are given today. And uh, we, we could spend the next couple of weeks going through this, and if I'm going to fulfill my promise to finish Acts 15 today, <laughs> we're, we're not going to go through all of these, but they have, they have a tremendous section on the invitation that is often given, which is, will you believe in Jesus and make him Lord of your life? And they say this, and I think it's a tremendous statement. This invitation deals with personal dedication and obedience by the believer. It does not deal with salvation for the unsaved. That's, that's important. That's important. Lordship is for the believer not for the unbeliever. Lordship is for the believer, not for the unbeliever. The idea of lordship salvation is not scriptural. The unsaved person cannot make Christ the Lord of his life. He has no spiritual life and no ability to obey the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. There's nothing in us as unbelievers 
that can respond to God. We are dead in trespasses and sins. That's the, that's the doctrine of depravity. The doctrine of depravity, another important doctrine. All people are corrupted by sin. All people are corrupted by sin. And every part of every person is corrupted by sin. That's the doctrine of depravity. The intellect, the emotion, the will are all corrupted by sin. There is nothing a person can do that can make themselves right with God or for God. That's the doctrine of depravity. All you and I can do as unbelievers when we, before we knew Christ is to put our faith in Him. To put our faith in Him. Now you and I, as believers, I don't know however long you've been a believer, whether you've been a believer for, for one month, one year, ten years, twenty years, it is our job to be bringing every part of our lives under His Lordship. The decisions we make, the thoughts we have, the way we live, every part of those, every part of that should be being placed under the Lordship of Christ. But to add Lordship as a condition, to believe and make Him Lord of your life as a condition for salvation is erroneous. Well, there are many others. I just focused on those two from last week, the two from this week. Let's move on in the passage this morning. Remember the issue is back in... We're back in Acts chapter 15. The issue is laid out before us. Some men, in verse 1, came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And verse 5 tells us that they also added that you, must, you are required to obey the law of Moses to be saved. That's the issue. This is a crucial turning point of the church. What are the conditions of salvation? What must I do to be saved? The bottom line of that answer, I don't want to be unclear. I want to be clear. The bottom line of that answer is, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's it. But you see, we have these legalizers, these Judaizers, who are adding to faith, keeping the law, who are adding to faith, circumcision so that's that's what's going on here and and we see here in verse 5 the pharisees set forth the issue and then in verses 6 to 9 the church begins to debate the issue exhibit number one is the testimony of peter exhibit number one is the testimony of peter and we we looked at that last week in verses 6 to 9 the apostles and elders meant to consider this question, uh, met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, that's 10 years earlier he's referring to, a choice, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. 
Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter's testimony is that God, it was God who opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. He used me. It was an incident with me and Cornelius, a Gentile who brought his cohorts and brought his family into his home to hear the gospel from Peter. But as Peter was speaking and as Peter was sharing about Jesus Christ and that he's God incarnate, that he is the Messiah, he's the Savior. As Peter was sharing, they believed and without any laying on of Jewish hands, without any laying on of Peter's hands, suddenly these Gentiles began to speak in other tongues. That's Peter's point. God made a choice. God used me. He's referring to earlier in the book of Acts when God sent him to Cornelius. God made a choice. God did it. God incorporated the Gentiles. God gave them the Holy Spirit. God did that. And how did he do that? He did that without any imposition of Jewish hands. Peter is exhibit one. This is a choice God has made. This direction that the church is going is something that God did, that God provoked, that God moved. And he reminds them of what happened some 10 years earlier. Peter said, we are saved just as they are. That is by faith by faith and he makes it clear it's by faith that's verse 9 through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that's verse 11 we are saved by grace through faith we are saved by grace through faith Gentiles are saved by grace through faith not by addition of the law not by addition of circumcision but Gentiles are saved by grace through faith Jews are saved by grace through faith. Well, exhibit one is Peter. Exhibit two is the testimony of Paul and Barnabas. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. The second exhibit is the testimony of Paul and Barnabas. The testimony of Paul and Barnabas. They testified and backed up what Peter had said. Peter had talked about the removal of the yoke of the law. Peter had talked about how the law, as one writer put it, cannot purify the sinner's heart. It cannot impart the gift of the Holy Spirit. The law cannot give eternal life. What the law could not do, God did through His own Son. Those who have trusted Christ have the righteousness of God's law in their hearts and through the Spirit obey His will, motivated not by fear, 
but by love. Motivated not by fear, but by love. Peter testified to what the law could not do. Paul and Barnabas show how God worked among the Gentiles simply by faith in Jesus Christ. Not circumcision, not law, not adding anything to belief in Christ. And Paul and Barnabas testify to that. They are exhibit number two. And the church thrills at what was done through them. Well, verses 12 to 21, we have James, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church, summarize and move the ball forward, so to speak, as the church at the Jerusalem council considered this question, what is the place of the law? What is the place of circumcision? How is a person saved? And James begins to speak. Now, you may remember, I'll give you a little bit of background. James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He has an interesting story. He and his brothers, all half-brothers of Jesus, did not believe in Jesus before the resurrection. In fact, at one point, they and Mary showed up to take Jesus home because people were saying something's wrong with him. And his brothers didn't disagree. Jesus' half-brothers didn't disagree. Well, James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, is the half-brother of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.7 tells us he was saved after the resurrection when Jesus, his half-brother, appeared to him. James is also the writer of the book of James. He was call, called, this is an interesting name, he was called Old Camel Knees. You know why? Who knows why? Who knows why James was called Camel Knees? Why? He prayed. He was known to be a prayer so much so that his knees had calluses from kneeling before God and praying. Old camel, camel knees. Interesting title. He was also known as James the Just. He was also known as James the Just. Now why is that? Well, he was known as James the Just because... He knew the law. He knew the law. He's in charge. He is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He is moderating this Jerusalem council, and he is the perfect person to do it because he knew the law. But you know, he knew something more important. He knew the impossibility of keeping it. He knew the impossibility of keeping it. Sometime, please don't do it in the next 20 minutes, but sometime look up the book of James and look up chapter 2 where James lays out that if you keep 
the law but fail in one little point, you have broken all of the law. He is called James the Just, and I think he's the perfect one, handpicked by God, obviously, to lead the Jerusalem council because he knows the law, but he also knows the limitations of the law, and he knows the impossibility of keeping it. Now, he does something interesting when they finish, the they refers to Barnabas and Paul. In verse 13, we read, when they finished, James spoke up. Now, I want you to notice what James does. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The first thing he does is he completely ignores Paul and Barnabas. I don't think he ignores them, but he wants to jump, cut to the chase. Well, what's the chase? He goes right to Peter. Why? Because Peter is the Gentile, I mean, excuse me, the apostle to what people? The Jews. Peter is known as the apostle to the Jews. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Of course he's going to be on the Gentile side. Of course he's going to promote that side of the argument. So James, very smart, I think, on his part. I'm sure he thrilled at the testimony of Paul and Barnabas just like the rest of the Jerusalem church did, but I think also he understood that if the point is going to be carried, that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised and do not have to come under the law to be saved, he knew that Peter was going to be the linchpin. Peter, the apostle to the Jews, was going to be the linchpin. So he immediately goes to Peter. Peter was the first. That's what he means by at first. Peter was the first. Not Paul, not Barnabas. Peter was the first. But it was God who had taken the initiative to send Peter to Cornelius. Remember, he had to even convince Peter to talk to Cornelius' representatives who came to see him in Joppa. He's on the roof and he's having this vision of the sheep with all this food and God says to him, take, kill, and eat. And he says, no way, Lord, I'm not going to do that. Oh, you remember the story. And God had to convince him that all food was clean, which was an illustration that all people are clean. And Gentiles show up at Peter's door and he invites them in, which was a definite no-no. James focuses on Peter. Peter at first, he was the first. God took the initiative through him. Simon's described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. But then James does a second thing. James does a second thing. He not only focuses on Peter instead of Paul and Barnabas, but he also 
brings in the Word of God. And he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the prophet Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and combines with it Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 21. After this, uh, excuse me, I'll start at verse 15. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the what? Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. You see, the church was a mystery. Ephesians 2 and 3 the church was a mystery, something that was not known in the Old Testament and is now being revealed, Paul says. That's what a mystery is, a biblical mystery is. But James says the salvation of Gentiles without going, becoming proselytes, without going through Judaism, without going under the law, without going under circumcision, the salvation of the Gentiles was already predicted in the Old Testament. And so he quotes Amos here. You see, the question the Jews would have is what about the future glory of Israel? What about the future kingdom? How do Jews and Gentiles relate in the church? And what James is showing them is that the future for program for Israel is not canceled. Please hear me. The future program for Israel is not canceled. The church doesn't become Israel. The church doesn't take Israel's place. The church doesn't take Israel's covenants. The church doesn't take Israel's promises. Even though Gentiles are coming to faith apart from the law, apart from circumcision, God isn't done with Israel yet. In fact, God is focusing on calling out a people for himself from among the Gentiles, and that's what he's doing today. He's calling out a people for himself among we Gentiles. And there's coming a day when Jesus is going to return, put down his enemies, set up the millennial kingdom, and beginning with the tribulation, going through the millennium, the Jews once again take center stage of God's program. And that's what Peter is doing, excuse me, not Peter, but James is doing by quoting Amos chapter 9, in Isaiah chapter 45. There's a second thing here I don't want you to miss. What James is also saying is that the testimony of experience isn't enough. The testimony of Peter's experience, the testimony of Paul and Barnabas's experience is not enough. We've got to know that what we're doing is in line with the Scripture. That's the only question that matters. Is it scriptural? Is it scriptural? 
That's the only issue that matters. And so James brings in that part of it. As Charles Ryrie has says, God has not abandoned his plans for the kingdom of Israel. God has not abandoned his plans for the kingdom of Israel. Merle Unger, an earlier teacher of the word of God, said this, the immense significance of the first church council consists first in saving the gospel from Judaistic mixture and second in the revelation of God's gracious purposes for the present age and the age to come. The purpose of the present age is to take out of the Gentiles a people for God's name, the called out ones, the church, the body of Christ. After this I will return, that is Christ's second advent, when the called out number is complete, Christ will return, then Israel be, will be restored. I will rebuild David's fallen tent. I will restore it. The kingdom will be established. The world converted in God's plan for the ages will be fulfilled. Israel isn't being set aside because Gentiles are coming into the church on their own footing without becoming proselytes, without being circumcised, without having to follow the law. Israel's not set aside. But God is calling out a people for himself, and you and I are part of those called out ones. Isn't that cool? We're part of those called out ones. And when the number is done, when the number is complete, God will call out the church in the rapture. The tribulation after that will begin and God's program for Israel will take once again center stage. That's what James is trying to assure these people about. Well, he makes a proposal starting in verse 19. Is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. James proposal is this, we should not add anything to faith in Jesus Christ. We should not, not add anything to faith in Jesus Christ. What James is proposing is that the church adopt a couple of things to make it easier for there to be fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. And so what he proposes is not adding to faith, it's not changing the terms of salvation. What James is proposing here is that this is a way Gentiles can accommodate Jews so Jews feel comfortable in their interaction in the church with Gentiles. And he picks these three things. These three things. Abstain from food polluted by idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. And abstain from blood. The question 
was how to maintain fellowship by Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile are now in the same body. They're now on equal footing in the church. And if you want to read more about that, read Ephesians 2 and 3. But now they're on the same footing in the church. Well, how's that going to happen? How's that fellowship going to happen? The Jews had certain scruples. And James is simply saying, observe these three things and it will smooth the way for fellowship between the two groups so that there won't be a Jewish church and a Gentile church, but it'll be one church, Jew and Gentile together. And James is saying that these three things will help smooth the way for that. Why food sacrificed to idols? It was common for Gentiles to use an idol's temple for banquets and celebration. James is saying, don't do that. Don't attend temple banquets yourself. Don't serve meat bought in the temple, in the, the false god's temple marketplace. Meat markets, to don't serve that to your Jewish brothers. That will smooth the way for fellowship. That will smooth the way for relationship. Fornication was the second thing. Immorality was a common problem among the Gentiles. And even, maybe especially a problem for Christians, Paul spends a whole section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 18, where he answers arguments that some of the teachers in the church were putting forth in favor of immorality. Can you believe it? By the way, People of that ilk are still with us today. Still with us today. So stay away from food, sacrifice to idols, stay away from immorality, and thirdly, don't eat meat with blood in it, with its blood still in it. Now, that was a part of the law, and so many people say, well, that's something that uh, we can just ignore because it was part of the law and the law's complete. But what predates the law? What predates the law of Moses when it comes to the issue of eating an animal without draining its blood? No one knows? Not Abraham. The Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. Many believe, many good Bible teachers believe we're still under the Noahic covenant. In the Noahic covenant, they were instructed to drain the blood of an animal before they ate the animal. And many believe that is still a covenant that you and I are under today. You see, God gave Noah the privilege of eating animal flesh, but the blood must be drained from it. And now there are lots of things that we can, we can uh, talk about there. But that's the basic rule that many believe we're still under, that the blood must be drained from an animal. Uh, one of my absolute favorite shows, probably number one or number two, is Mountain Men. Right? Do I get an amen? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, second is Lone Star Law. If you've never seen Lone Star Law or Mountain Man, you gotta, you got to watch both of those. Well, every once in a while on Mountain Man, somebody will make a kill because they live off the land, and they'll make a kill like a, a deer, deer or, or some, uh, some animal that they use for food. And I, I'll never forget the first time I saw this, I wanted to gag, and maybe you will too. But they cut the animal open, pull out the heart, and chomp in it because that's supposed to show respect for this animal which gave its life for them to have food. While it's, never mind. The Noahic covenant would say that is not something we should be doing. The blood should be drained from the animal. The blood should be drained. And that's something that James suggests would smooth the way for fellowship between Jew and Gentile. So that's what that's about. So what did they decide? Uh, verse 22, the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they chose Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. And you can read the letter. I won't take time this morning to do that. But the letter basically lays out what the Jerusalem council had decided and basically makes it clear that they are not to add, the churches are not to add anything to salvation, but the churches rather are to observe these three things, the Gentile churches, that will help them to interact with their Jewish Brothers in Christ. And so they sent out. By the way, we see again Luke's practice of mentioning somebody's name that's going to become prominent later. Silas will become prominent later, starting at the end of chapter 15 of the book of Acts. And they sent them out. Now, boy, there's so much we could say. I don't want to take another week on this. We're going to finish it today. There's so much we could say about this. But do you notice how careful they are about communication? One of the problems I think the churches have is not being really good communicators uh, as far as communicating what's uh, uh, certain issues and, and what's important. Uh, that's one of the th reasons we have a welcome lunch. We're trying to communicate with you about what's important to this body of believers and what has been important over our history. And uh, the, you notice how careful they were? The letter was written and delivered, and the letter, the, the decision of the council was spoken by these people that they sent along with Paul and Barnabas. They made very sure that the message wouldn't be garbled. This was too important a message to have it garbled. And so it was written and it was spoken. Last thing I want to deal with, it, I mentioned last week that this chapter is a great chapter for a method by which churches can settle disputes, particularly doctrinal disputes. There are other methods for personal disputes, but particularly doctrinal disputes. Let me just quickly give you eight things. Number one, they met face to face. They met face to face. Number two, they defined the issue. 
Number three, there was full and open discussion of all the parties. Number four, there was a summary by the leader, by James. Number five, they looked at what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this issue? Number six, they came to a conclusion and decided on a course of action. Number seven, they took care that there was no breakdown in communication. They used written communication and personal verbal communication. And number eight is not a step but a result. They had unity, harmony, and peace. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you. Remind us, Lord, today of how important doctrine is. Remind us of this important decision by the Jerusalem church that still is in effect today. And re remind us, Lord, of what a tremendous thing salvation is offered to us fully and freely, not by the things that we do, not by our works, not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.